there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. When you're talking about the moments that defined the year, the election of Ronald Reagan had to be first and foremost for Americans in 1980. I'd say the death of John Lennon was arguably just as defining for the era that followed, and it was sort of a delineation between what was and what would be. There's not an American who was alive that year who doesn't clearly remember the Fuhrer over the insanely important question who shot JR, and likewise, I suspect you know exactly where you were when the miracle on ice occurred and the U.S. hockey team beat the USSR. Finally, while you may not remember the event, I would argue that the establishment of the United Negro College Fund in September was a landmark moment that has changed and bettered a generation of Americans. And there were some awesome movies in 1982. Hi, I'm Drew McWinney, and uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hi, everybody. Welcome to 80s All Over, and this is our very first wrap-up episode uh, because we've finished our first year of the podcast uh, with 1980, and that's uh, it's kind of an exciting landmark to have finally gotten through you know, our first section of this this experiment. You know, we want to thank everybody who has uh, downloaded, listened to, reviewed, recommended, tweeted, whatever, supported our first 12 episodes. We really, really appreciate it. Every comment we get about the movies we mention just means a lot. It really does. One of the things you do is you do send us corrections when we get things wrong. And many of you reached out to us after the November episode because we pulled a pretty big boner. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. Yes, we did. I want to thank our mutual friend, Chris Campbell, an excellent film writer and documentary junkie who politely, who, who politely pointed out the error that Drew made. I'm just kidding. I made We both made it. And it's it's an easy one because it's the story is about um, when Errol Morris bet Werner Herzog that he wasn't going to ever finish Gates of Heaven. And in the end, Werner Herzog had to eat his shoe, uh, although that was the bet. It was Les Blank, the filmmaker who shot the thing and actually released Werner Herzog eats his shoe, which is a terrific little short film. While we didn't mean to slight Les Blank at all, he's an amazing filmmaker in his own right. And if you want to see another great uh, Werner Herzog related film, he did a movie called Burden of Dreams about the making of Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo that is absolutely awesome. Truly amazing. I uh, Burden of Dreams, I thought, I think it was Hulu. And it is fascinating. Absolutely. I didn't, I forgot that was also Les Blank. Kudos to him. There were also, there are two movies that we will get into in our second segment of the uh, the episode because we left them out inexplicably. And it's because there is a little bit of an argument about the release date. Technically, I think both of these films opened to some degree in 1979 in the United States, but they both qualified for the 1980 Academy Awards. And as a result, they are definitely grouped with 1980 films in terms of general memory. So we'll get into those when we start talking about the Oscars. But first, Scott, 
I like the way you suggested we break this up with the year and we kind of talk about different things that that sum up that year of 1980. And first and foremost, of course, are the 10 biggest films of the year uh, box office wise. You know, this will just be fun trivia for movie geeks, so we're not going to linger too long on it. But why don't we start at number 10, 57 million dollars. And of course, this is in 1980 money for the Blues Brothers. The crazy thing to me is that we're talking about the top 10 list and number 10 is $57 million. It is a real testament to how different the box office game is now. Uh, so number nine was with $58 million, The Blue Lagoon, which, as we discussed, trash, genuinely trash. But this goes to my theory that in the early 1980s, America had a truly unpleasant obsession with Brooke Shields. Yes, they did. They also had a slightly less unpleasant obsession with Burt Reynolds, whose Smokey and the Bandit 2 is number eight at 66 million. It's interesting because when you look at the top 10 list, exploitation was a big thing back then. And this was that era where certainly they were feeding into that at the box office. So, yeah, Smokey and the Bandit 2 was there. Coal Miner's Daughter was uh, actually a bigger hit, $67 million, which is an unbelievable amount for a biopic compared to like everything else that came out that year. It's Oscar run probably helped it make some money, but I would not have guessed that. I would not have guessed that. Uh, the number six film uh, with $69 million is the very clever Goldie Hawn vehicle, Private Benjamin. That I understand because that was a phenomenon. That was one of those movies that I remember everybody talking about. And it wasn't just kids. I heard parents talking about that. Was a, that's the thing also is there was different buzz that I listened to back then. I would talk to my friends, obviously, and there was stuff that I was interested in. But I listened to adults talking about movies because I was really curious what was working for them. And this is one of those movies that everybody was talking about. And Private Benjamin, they all talked about the opening where she kills her husband during sex on their honeymoon. And Eileen Brennan was what everybody talked about when they talked about that movie, how great she was. Right. Well, it's a, it's a testament to trying a little bit harder because Private Benjamin, you got Goldie Hawn in that kind of vehicle at that moment in her career. That was probably going to be a hit anyway. OK, but you made it smart. You, you know, you in, imbued it with some real character and some real wit, not just silly farce. And that's her as a producer. Like she was smart by that point about what she wanted to be and how she wanted to play that character. The, the ding dong, the people who just want a naive woman in army, they get it. But people who want something a little bit more, they also get it. So that I'm not surprised. Private Benjamin was a big hit. Drew, what was number five? Uh, a shit pile. Yes, let's just cite it and move on. Any which way you can. This is the opposite. This is every worst impulse rewarded. Oh, my God, that's a terrible film. Uh, and the number four movie with 83 million. And I, I doubt very highly that it would make that much money today. But it, it makes me very happy to announce that Airplane is the number four film of 1980 with $83 million. That was another one that it felt like everybody talked about it. If it was probably ran in theaters for five, six months. Well, that was, that was part of the fun of it is you would take somebody who hadn't seen it and you'd see it with them and then you'd watch them lose their mind. And then the two of you would take somebody else to see it. Airplane played for a long time precisely for that reason. Yeah, I think uh, uh, laugh a minute type comedies, if they're good, can get a lot of repeat viewings. OK, Drew, what do you got? Our number three movie of 1980. Well, you talk about a jump. You go from eighty-three million for airplane, which was still back then a ton of money, to a hundred and one million, almost twenty million dollars between them for Stir Crazy. That's the pinnacle of the Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor magic, right there. Yeah, Stir Crazy was a phenomenon, and it looked at that point like it, like there were going to be fifty movies with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. And I'm really surprised there weren't more immediately because it felt like that's what everybody wanted. The number two film, this I knew was a big hit, but I did not realize it was quite this big of a hit. 
With $103 million, the number two film of 1980 is 9 to 5. America loved Dolly Parton. 1980, you could not go wrong with Dolly Parton. And that was a film where women went back to it because it was this feeling of, oh, yeah, in the theater. You know, I always talk about um, Elite Squad, the uh, sequel to the um, Brazilian action film. There's a reason that was the number one film ever released in Brazil, and it had nothing to do with the action or the story or anything else. It was because in the movie, somebody got to punch out a crooked politician, and nobody had ever seen that image in Brazilian culture where political corruption is a fact of life and it was unbelievable it, like ripped the roof off the of theaters people went ape shit and i think that nine to five was a moment for a lot of people in the late 70s early 80s that felt like a cultural happening because of what it endorsed and how clever it was about doing it i love the idea that a, a movie about three tough no bullshit women was the number two film of the year you know 37 years ago Plus, it's so fucking funny. I love the movie. We talked about it last week. We're talking about it again. I swear to God, I think I'm going to watch 9 to 5 this weekend. I'm not kidding. Drew, I will give you the honor. I'm sure our audience can guess. I will say the total, and you will say the title. How's that? The number one film of 1980 with $209 million. The Empire Strikes Back. was nothing bigger and in 1980 there was nothing like it there was no other experience that everybody had to have there wasn't a kid you knew who hadn't seen star wars there wasn't a parent alive who hadn't gone everybody you talked to about star wars knew exactly what was what that was it that was the moment to me where even more than in 1977 it was an affirmation that everybody loved star wars what i love about it is uh i don't care if you're nine 19 or 89. The point is there are have been points where a sequel of some sort has been on the horizon and you are so excited and you can't wait to see it and you're a little bit afraid it might not be good but you're mostly optimistic because you love the first movie and boy are you excited. Empire Strikes Back was in many ways the first and biggest of those. I mean there was Jaws 2, there was Halloween 2, of course, big movies had had sequels, but this was the first time that it was like an event, a big... I think it's the second time, but I think it's two guys who thought similarly, and I think they probably talked about sequel theory, because Francis Coppola got it right for The Godfather. And I think what Lucas was trying to do was exactly that, treat the sequel seriously, while also paying homage to serials. Respect was paid to what that can be, and what it can do to you as an audience. Yeah, it, it, realized, it, it embraced the space opera, the old school serial style of storytelling, ends on a cliffhanger because everybody and their mother knows there's going to be more movies, so why not end it on a, a bittersweet but satisfying cliffhanger? And Han Solo is really only Han Solo because of Empire Strikes Back. Part one Han Solo is cool. I think part two Han Solo is Han Solo. That's who we love. He's likable, and when, when he comes back at the end, we all cheer, but he's not that... There's not that many shades to Han in, in Star Wars. By the time you get to the end end of Empire, you are in love with Han Solo. Harrison swaggered into Empire. Like, you look at him in that movie, he knows exactly what he is. He knows he's a movie star. He knows it's for real. And he knows Han Solo inside. It, it's such a great performance. Uh, my friends and I... We, uh, what, what's with Boba Fett? Is Lando Calrissian a really a good guy or is he not? Like, we talked about this for three years <laughs> until Emma Return came out. One of the things that I, I remember 
was I was starting to buy comic adaptations. And in particular, the Marvel comic adaptation for Empire Strikes Back, they had drawn a number of things before they had final designs. So there is some stuff that appears in the comic that doesn't look anything like that, including the old purple Yoda, which was fucking weird. They didn't know what to do with him yet. So the first issue came out before the movie. And I remember at that point, enough was different that I was like, okay, I don't feel like they ruined anything. I don't feel like I got anything because it looks totally different in the film. That that was the early days of me going crazy and anything I could get my hands on that was movie related. I that stuff read. is movie geek crack. My favorite thing in a similar vein, my favorite thing of all time when I was a young movie geek was seeing a movie probably twice and then getting the novelization and then stumbling across three or four sequences that weren't in the film and and reading those moments in the novelization that were cut out of the final prick film. You're like, holy crap, there really was an octopus in the Goonies. Oh, my God. What happened? They must have. Oh, I love that stuff. But anyway, top those were the top 10 movies of 1980. It makes me very happy. Blues Brothers is on that list. I'm surprised The Shining isn't, though, and I'm surprised Friday the 13th isn't, because I thought Friday the 13th was a bigger hit than that. Because of the people that I heard talking about it, I thought it was seen by everyone, and clearly that's not the case. It wasn't gigantic like that. All right, Drew, we're going to briefly cover the Oscar winners and some of the nominees from the 1980 Oscars. Uh, what, where, where should we start, Drew? What, what category? Well, I think, I think we should start with the, big, the biggest winner of the evening, and clearly that was Ordinary People. Best Picture best adapted screenplay supporting actor and director and mary tyler moore was nominated it was a, i mean it was a certainly that film was i think going into it people were very strongly passionate about it. i'm not surprised looking now at it that that's the winner it feels like the kind of movie the oscars would would want to celebrate um what were some of the other nominees that year scott the other uh, nominees for best picture were coal miner's daughter the elephant man raging bull and then one of the two films that we omitted th- throughout the year, uh, Roman Polanski's Tess. Now, it's weird because I wouldn't know how to vote between if you just put a thing in front of me and you said you got to vote which one's better, Raging Bull or The Elephant Man. That would be a really hard thing to cast because I think those films both do something very similar and they do it in much of the same language. And I think of them as, as very complimentary movies be really hard to say specifically well that one's the better what's interesting to me though is when you look back at old oscar winners what was of urgency to american people in that era like you could say that you know racism was a a very hot topic when crash won it's funny you and i talked a lot this year about a certain kind of movie that was getting made and that was the uh sort of suburban malaise i want to fuck other people movie what i think is interesting about ordinary people then is i think it's almost the logical end point of a decade of those movies hollywood frequently gets very conservative in terms of the actual message sent in the movie and i think they over and over those movies say monogamy is the best going with your original marriage is the best go back to the partner you were with that's what those movies encourage ordinary people is an evolution of that where it's like this is the facade of a good life and it is broken underneath. And I think it is the end game of that decade of exploration and me, me, me. These are the people now that are going to end up paying the price for that. This is how their result. This is what results from that. It's a very good film. You'll hear a lot of movie geeks complain that Raging Bull should have won Best Picture or The Elephant Man should have won Best Picture. And I wouldn't argue with either of them, but that's not to discount. Robert Redford's film. It's really very insightful and touching. And the craft awards, which I, I think a lot of times I, those are grouped together and they give them to movies that that are the prettiest movies. And they all went to test this year. They all went to the Polanski film. 
I'm sorry we didn't get to discuss Tess. I like Tess a lot. He clearly was intrigued by one thing about the character from the novel, and that's the movie he wanted to make. And so it's fitting that he doesn't quite call it the same thing as the book. It's his take on it. It's what he read and was interested in. If you're going to be uncomfortable about watching Roman Polanski films, this is one of the ones that should probably make you uncomfortable because he's clearly obsessed as a, as a visual artist with Natasha Kinski. And it is a film that is shot as an act of obsession. He can't stop looking at her. And that's the main subtext of the movie. It's a gorgeous film to look at, without question. That I that I would say unreservedly. And it's brutal. It's emotionally brutal. I think there's the later half of Tess. I think it's a really hard film in a lot of ways. It's certainly not a sentimental movie, but it's a. It looks like a sentimental movie. Best actor. Discuss that real quick. Uh, these are great, great nominees. Good lord, Peter O'Toole for the stuntman, Jack Lemmon for tribute, John Hurt for the Elephant Man, Robert Duvall for the Great Santini. And Robert De Niro for Raging Bull. And the winner is all five of those people. We are better for all five of those performances. Before we discuss, you mentioned a a person and I just mentioned a person. And I would like to put a quick pin in the show for just a second so that Drew and I can at least mention the passing of the ethereally wonderful Mary Tyler Moore. One of the funniest women ever to grace television. Uh, She was much more focused on TV than film. But uh, anybody who grew up in our era knows who Mary Tyler Moore was. And uh, and a great uh, producer, a great producer. She had a ferocious sense of what would work and put so many talented people to work and was responsible for so many careers. Her influence continues to be felt and will continue to be felt through generations of TV writers. Yeah, li- lifelong uh, supporter of the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation, by all accounts, just a classy, sweet woman, and uh, she will be missed. In a similar vein, we would also like to bid a fond farewell to one of the best actors I think we've ever been graced with, and that's John Hurt. One of the best voices in film history. What a set of pipes. I'm really, really pleased, Scott, that you and I did uh, were both part of the commentary that you put together for Snowpiercer. And I just rewatched it as a way of paying tribute to John Hurt when he passed and uh, showed it to Lisa, who'd never seen it. Uh, holy God, I love that movie, and I love his performance in it. And it is a reminder that one of the things you got with Hurt, aside from that voice, is he looked like a Jim Henson creation. And when you see him as Mr. Ollivander in the Harry Potter films, or you see him as the storyteller in the Jim Henson thing. Oh, in Hellboy. He's so wonderful. It's because of him that you understand why that guy would take Hellboy home and love him and nurture him. And like Hurt, throughout his career, he's that guy that came in and just killed. And in every film he's he's in, he literally makes the material better. I, and I just love always him. welcome, always. And, you know, you'd see his name or his face pop up and you'd just be like, oh, John Hurt. So no matter how this movie might not be brilliant, but at least it's got John Hurt and he's worth watching. I love contact. I love him when he's in free when he's in zero gravity and he tells her about the second machine. What do you say? Want to take a ride? Great, great guy. He's, there's there's still three or four films that he was working on that aren't even finished yet. So John Hurt, you take. John Hurt, who's one of our greatest actors, you take The Elephant Man, one of his greatest performances, and I would argue maybe one of the greatest makeup performances of all time, ranking right up there with Karloff, with anybody you want to set up there who's performed through this incredible, cumbersome thing. And yet, I understand why Robert De Niro won, because I look at Raging Bull and I'm like, yeah, well, you know what's amazing about that is uh, Robert De Niro fucking did that to himself. Holy God. And I'm as impressed by the ripped version of him at the beginning as I am by the insane animal fat version at the end. 
Stuff like this makes me slightly annoyed at award shows because in what universe would you compare De Niro's performance in Raging Bull to John Hurt's performance in The Elephant Man? None. They couldn't possibly be more different. They couldn't possibly be going for more different things. But yet we're supposed to like gauge which one's better like you're at the deli. We're standing here and we're arguing now about these two guys and we're going, okay, you've got Raging Bull. Holy shit. That is that is it. That is the movie. And you've got John Hurt with The Elephant Man. Okay, those two performances. Wow, that's it. I'm going to have to debate between those. And what? The Great Santini? Fuck you! What? I have to put that in the mix, too? That Robert Duvall performance, you want to talk about all-time, absolutely great, unforgettable work. He is the dad from hell in that movie. And Michael O'Keefe, who, you know, in Caddyshack, he's charming and whatever. He doesn't have to do much to, to carry that movie. I think in Great Santini, he's phenomenal. He's as good as Tim Hutton is in Ordinary People. It's one of the best performances he's ever done. And Duvall, Duvall and Hackman are my favorite actors ever. Revisited it like probably 20 years later and the film just killed me, broke me. It's absolutely, uh, we didn't get to cover it because. That, that was the other one that came out. Yeah, The Great Santini came out in 1979 and apparently had some kind of an Oscar qualifying run in 1980. And in the future, we'll try to catch those. But at least we caught it now. And if you've never seen The Great Santini, do yourself a favor and watch it. And then you go, okay, so that's three all-time great performances. That's insane. There's no way to pick between them. I'm sorry, what, the stuntman? Fucking kill me. You're seriously going to put the fourth performance that on that level. Uh, for Peter O'Toole, as somebody who, Lawrence of Arabia is one of my favorite films, I would say the stuntman is a summation of everything that is wonderful about older Peter O'Toole and everything that's great about, in many ways, the English stage actors who became giant film hams when they became American stars. Yep. And, and then Jack Lemmon. There's not a weak link. There's some, you know, not to denigrate a good actor, but there's sometimes where you could just eliminate one or two and go, yeah, that was good performance, but not quite. All five of these performances could have won. That It really is an unbelievable category. And for them to have given it to Raging Bull, I think just it comes down to how could you be upset if you're any of those guys? You've given one of those indelible, will live forever performances that we are still talking about actively right now. Best actress in a leading role, Jenna Rollins for Gloria, Mary Tyler Moore for Ordinary People, the hilarious Goldie Hawn for Private Benjamin, the brilliant Ellen Burstyn for Resurrection. And the winner was Sissy Spacek for Coal Miner's Daughter, deserved if only for the sequence of the film where she has to play 14-year-old Loretta Lynn and we're supposed to believe it. No, she's great in it. And it's one of those things, Sissy Spacek, she was so good out of the gate and is such a natural... Sissy Spacek just has But this they stopped writing the kind of stuff she made. They stopped writing roles for Sissy Spacek. And so I don't think she really got this, the back half of the career that that front half implied. Yeah, and, and it, it's kind of odd that Mary Tyler Moore, you know, uh, her, her biggest movie role after, you know, doing television for so many years, she got nominated, well-deserved, and then kind of didn't really follow that up with much movie-wise. I think there's really only one other truly phenomenal Mary Tyler Moore film performance, and that's in Flirting with Disaster. I want you to see something. Oh, Very nice, look. girl. God's sake. I want you to consider my age and ask yourself how I maintain this. Mom, why are you this? doing this? How? This is it. I don't All right, know can we how. not deal with this I couldn't right now, have please? a baby, but I had to fight the laws of gravity just the same, and you need the help of a good bra. And believe you me, you want to keep your husband's attention, you'll get one pronto. She's holy shit good in that movie. But Ellen Burstyn, Jenna Rollins. Every one of those is a great performance again, though. What do you? Uh, what about Goldie Hawn being nominated for Best Actress? Because I always it always stands out to me. It's the Kevin Klein rule that when somebody gets nominated for straight comedy, that always makes me happy. Even though they don't, you know, aside from Kevin Klein, of course, and Marissa Tomei, they don't generally seem to win for straight comedy. 
No, and it's hard. I think there are performances that they missed that should have been rewarded. There were comedy performances. I, I've always said that John Candy's performance in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is one of those that it's perfect. It's a perfect performance. And yet, because it's comedy, it's really genuinely not well thought of. I, I do think Goldie Hawn, that is as much a reward for her whole career. And the idea that she had wrestled control of it the way she did, that she wasn't a dingbat in real life, that she was somebody who played that character beautifully, but was aware enough to know how to tweak it and play with expectations. And and it, it almost not not to be dismissive of the an actor's work, but it almost seems like, oh, this is your first big Oscar nomination. Welcome to the party. You're not going to win, but now you're in the door and you have a good chance if you get nominated again. Well, she got nominated when she was much younger for Cactus Flower. Oh, you're right. That's right. That wasn't even her first nomination. Good and call. That, but, but that is, Cactus Flower is the ding-dong Goldie Hawn. And the question had always been, I think, from that point on, is that really her? Is she like that? Is, is it really an act? I think her as a producer, really, she showed that, no, no, I'm, I'm very aware of what this is, and I'm going to play it and lean into it and do things with it that are very smart. And that's exactly what Private Benjamin is. She's somebody who's much stronger than you think she is. Uh, supporting actor, uh, Jason Robards, Melvin and Howard. Joe Pesci, Raging Bull. Michael O'Keefe, The Great Santini. Judd Hirsch, Ordinary People. And the winner, Timothy Hutton, for Ordinary People. It's always funny they tell people that, you know, a lot of people don't even remember that Joe Pesci was an Oscar nominee, but he is. Uh, best Actress in a Supporting Role, Diana Scarwid for Inside Moves. Kathy Moriarty for Raging Bull. Eva LaGayen for Resurrection. Eileen Brennan for Private Benjamin. And the winner was Mary Steenburgen for Melvin and Howard. I would have maybe given it to Kathy Moriarty. That's just me. That's just me. I think that's a it's a very interesting award for Steenburgen. And I'm really surprised that she seemed to shake that image very quickly. And I think for a lot of people, the role that you play, that you win an Oscar for, especially if you're young when it happens, can become a trap or it can become something that people ask you to do over and over. Yeah, Steenburgen's always been versatile. She, you know, she she can be silly or she can be sexy or she can be sweet mommy type. She, she, she can do a lot. All right, Drew, I think that the main event is about to go. I think we're dum, ready dum, to roll. Bobby's going to put in some rousing music here. Bobby, put in the um, the music from 1941 right here. <laughs> All right, uh, are we ready to roll with this? So my number 10 film is a movie that we talked about. We got a lot of feedback from people who tracked this one down because of us. And I think a lot of people fell in love with this. And I'm not surprised at all because I adore this movie. It is My Bodyguard. I'm so glad you added this one because it was in my top 12. And I sent it to Bobby and he's like, dude, 10 and put them in order. Stop messing around. Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. Why, why Drew? I, I'm so glad you added this one. Uh, bodyguard. My Bodyguard is beautiful. Tell me why you love it. I think it's because it's really about subverting expectations. Almost every character in the film is not what you think they're going to be at the beginning. And that includes Chris Makepeace's character, who I don't think is as innocent. I don't think his hands are as clean as he wants to. Yeah, he's that's the conflict. That's a good point is that he at first he's the victim, but then he kind of becomes manipulative himself. And you're like, as the audience, you're like, no, don't go down that path. You don't want to be a manipulator. Don't be well, those guys. I think guys. the way he treats. Yeah, I think the way he treats uh, Adam Baldwin's character is it's really shitty and i think that the film each person in this looks past something to figure out who that real person is and you don't end up with the easy lessons about friendship i think there's some really hard lessons about friendship in this i i also think it's just it's cast incredibly well 
And it's weird because I have another film on my list that also features young Matt Dillon. And it's just a coincidence, but he was in amazing movies right off the bat. I think one of the reasons we still know who Matt Dillon was, was because of the filmmakers he worked with early in his career. When I put this list together, I started to realize, oh boy, I don't have like many quote unquote important or like Oscar type films. And I felt like, oh, this is the whole point of the podcast is like we're looking back at what we loved as kids and comparing it to what we love now. And I'll say this to you. I had an easier time doing my top 10 list for this than I have in any year that I've been doing it as an active film critic. And I think the reason is because I've lived with these films for 35 years. That's what made it harder for me. Anyway, Drew's number 10 was my bodyguard. My number 10 is Seems Like Old Times with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn as one of the best madcap, as they would say, screwball comedy, great characters, well-written. Uh, we just talked about it last month, so I don't need to go belabor the point. But if you've never seen Seems Like Old Times, prepare to be pleasantly surprised. Oh, that's a nice one. Thank you. Okay, my number nine is Robert Zemeckis' Used Cars. Ah, that's my number seven. I'm with you on this. One of the most over-the-top, joyously vulgar energetic, colorful comedies you'll ever see. I absolutely love used cars and I refuse to discount it as less than a great film just because it's a raunchy comedy. I'll go, I'll go so far as to say, I think used cars is a screenplay that like back to the future, you should teach to young writers. It is absolutely brilliant in terms of the way it is built. And Jack Warden, God bless him. He has a, a huge career, but I don't know that he has a lot of the defining role moments these two performances by Jack Warden are absolutely spectacular and some of the very best work he ever did. My number nine now is Over the Edge, a movie that I can't believe we had to go back and pick up as, oh, we forgot to mention this. Over the Edge is an unbelievable movie, and it's about a just a neighborhood in Texas, and it's a sort of a planned neighborhood, and the kids who live there are so bored that it's just this powder keg. And little by little, as adults kind of push... The kids start to push back and it erupts into real mayhem. And I don't want to say much more about it because if you haven't seen it, you absolutely should. I think Over the Edge is a movie that was as sharp and observant about kids then as it still feels now. And uh, again, Matt Dillon, young Matt Dillon in this, terrific, absolutely great piece of work. Very good film. I uh, haven't seen it in years, but I am glad to see it on your top 10. All right. So moving on, my number eight film is a movie that... I know it comes in much higher on your list, and because of that, I'd rather let you introduce the movie. Scott, what's your favorite movie of the year? My number one and year number eight of 1980 is the Zucker Abraham Zucker farce Airplane. And I will argue in front of the Supreme Court on why that movie deserves mention uh, on any list of the best comedies ever made. I think sometimes that when something is overtly silly, it, it gets uh, delegitimized a little bit as if it's not important. Very few films have ever given me as much joy as Airplane. Proud to say it is my favorite film of 1980. Oh, look, I have nothing bad to say about Airplane. I think it is a knockout start to finish. I love everything about it. I think that it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark and like Road Warrior. It is so imitated and has been to some degree diluted by simple imitation. It's hard to understand how weird Airplane felt when it came out, but it was a shock to see a movie that that was paced like this, that had this kind of energy that demanded that you look at the background and the foreground that had things like the, the people at the airport uh, PA system arguing. And th like from the very beginning, the film told you this is no other movie you've ever seen. 
I think for kids, you're, you're my age who were growing up on Mad Magazine, we immediately recognized that this was something new and that it, it was really fun and that it was playful. And I, I feel like that's what a lot of parody stuff these days isn't, is playful. The Zuckers look like they're enjoying this. They look like they're having a good time doing this stuff. I see so much of it now that feels perfunctory. It's like, all right, so you dress like Freddy Krueger and you're Shrek and you're fucking, I guess. And there's nothing about it that feels like they're enjoying it or they're inspired by what they... To me, that is what Zucker even Zucker has is they, they feel like they are just high on their own supply. And my number seven is Cue the Music Bobby, Robert Altman's Very nice. Well, that's my number six. So I am, I, you and I are very close on this one. And uh, I know that there were people that would yell at me for, for having Popeye on a list. Uh, certainly the year of 1980, if I were a working film critic and I were in a meeting with, say, Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael, and I said Popeye was in my top 10, I think both of them would probably choke on a sandwich. Like it certainly was not well regarded at that point. But man, I. I believe having spent years and years watching it and returning to it and watching how it's grown with people and seeing how it has settled in, I think it's a beautiful movie. One of the points, I think, of this podcast is to kind of give a perspective between nostalgia and current reality. And there are plenty of movies that we've covered in these episodes where I thought, oh, God, I thought it, Smokey and the Bandit 2 made me laugh when I was a kid, but I could barely watch it now. Lots of times that happens. And maybe either the nostalgia is so strong with me with Popeye, but I don't think so. Popeye, I like I like it more as an adult as than I did as a kid. It's a wonderful world. I love Altman's world that he creates in this film, and I love the people in it. I love the oil family when they're having breakfast and they're arguing. Castor Oil is sitting at the head of the family, and he's dealing with his wife, and he's dealing with his sons, and he's dealing with Olive, who is so insanely high maintenance, and Popeye is trying to take all this in. Yeah, well, what I don't get about the reaction to this movie, what I don't get is... It's different. It's strange. Why is that in and of itself bad? I don't know. I think it's a great cartoon. I know. I know. But it's like it's almost as if like audiences and critics to some degree say stick to safe, stick to mainstream. I believe that form and message need to be part of the same thing. That's one of the reasons that a movie like Speed Racer, people will catch up to it. Eventually, people will understand what that movie was. And I think it will play very, very well for a long time. Even if it never becomes a cult favorite, which it will, because I've seen it happening on Twitter, it doesn't matter. It speaks to you. But as a filmmaker, I I feel like they knew what they wanted to say. And for me, that's so important. So I get it may not be the same for you. You may not like the choices they made. I love that they made those choices. I don't even need to like the choices. I just love that they made them. That when Robert Altman created this world, he said... I want it to be full of cartoon characters, not just the main ones. I want everybody at the edge of frame and everything. I want them all to be cartoon characters for real, and I want it to feel like a world you could actually step into. You know what I'd like to do, Drew? I would like to interview, say, 50 movie geeks under the age of, say, 25, people who consider themselves hardcore comic book movie people, and ask those 50 young movie geeks what they think of Popeye, just as a translation of a comic book. And even if they don't think the comedy works or they don't love the music, I think visually speaking, I think contemporary uh, comic book geeks would still appreciate the visual scope. Well, I think I think certainly they're more prepared for what it is. My number six. And Bobby, can we get a little bass here? Because it's time for Flash. Ah, savior of 1980. We're probably going to cut that. Bobby, if you cut that, I'm, I'm All right, fine. Drew. 
<laughs> we gave this movie a massive tongue bath last week, so let's keep it short. If you were trying to convince a father or a mother to put on Flash Gordon for their 10-year-old kid, how would you convince that parent? If you want them to watch a movie, they're going to feel like they saw something crazy, and it is the safest version of that. Flash Gordon is the way to go. Your kid's going to feel like he got away with murder because the movie feels like it's for grownups. It's not. It's really silly and it's fun and it's so safe and it's so charming and a little goofy. It did, it did not make my my list. Um, I like the movie a lot. Uh, I, I think it is a little light for me to have put on the list. And unlike Popeye, I don't I, I can't defend it enough in the, the sense that I think there's something else working in there. I think it's just great surface. Would it have made your top 15? It, it was in the, it was in the list of the thirty films that I was considering. How dare you! I'm I'm surprised. What's okay, okay, brother? What's your number six? So my number six was Popeye, and my number five was the Elephant Man. That is my number four. Yeah, I, I, the Elephant Man to me is you want to talk about a case where form and message come together. It is the one time where I think David Lynch managed to take one hundred percent his voice and his approach and his style and bend it to a story that connected with people very directly and very emotionally. I think he did this again to some extent in the straight story later in his career, but but not to the same degree as this. Straight story is not a movie as visually arresting as The Elephant Man. The Elephant Man feels like a dream. It feels like specifically an opium dream. Like you are hopped up on something and it is the turn of the century and you're in industrial, ugly, wet England and this is the nightmare you have. And I, I find The Elephant Man haunting it's one of those films that i don't think i easily shook also i have a quick story for you scott true story i i know i've mentioned that michael jackson was a customer that we had at dave's video when i was there one time and i was putting inventory back as he was shopping i had to go and i was putting movies into the thing that had just come in and i grabbed out of the sales bin the next film to put back and it was for the elephant man the david lynch film and I'm standing directly next to him and I'm supposed to file it basically right where he's looking. And I'm like, well, this is going to look like I'm doing this on purpose because of him and the elephant man bones and all that stuff. And I don't know what I should do. So I get, all right, I'm just going to put it back and pretend like I don't know what I'm doing. And I went to put it back and I didn't even get it all the way to the rack. And Michael goes, oh, I'll take that. That's okay. I'll take that. And when I looked at him and handed it to him, he had the biggest smile on his face. Like he was daring me to say something. I went, good movie. I know you've told me that story before, but I still can't believe that, A, you've met Michael Jackson, and B, your Michael Jackson impression is on point. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, but he was it was so funny because you I think he did have some awareness of the, the joke value. And the fact that he smiled about it to me was one of those moments where you go, he's more normal than you think he is. Not normal normal, but more normal than you think. My, my favorite thing about The Elephant Man is a little more personal in that Movies like The Godfather, Once Upon a Time in America, and The Elephant Man were like my my entryway to adult content, adult themes, movies that a 12-year-old might not be that interested in. I, I, I saw The Elephant Man when I was a kid, and I felt like, wow, I, I, can't, I do have an attention span. Look at me. It's just beautiful. It's heartbreaking. Anthony Hopkins is great. Uh, uh, John Hurt is unreal. The, the black and white cinematography makes it feel like it could have been shot and, and released yesterday. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. So what's your number five then? My number five is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Ooh, that is number two on my list. 
it blew my mind that it wasn't in the top 10 box office movies because I thought it was bigger than that. It also blows my mind that it really did get shafted at, in terms of anybody paying any attention to it at the end of the year. It was not very well liked. It just wasn't received well when it came out. And we'll get into that in later in later years where movies that like uh, like John Carpenter's The Thing, for example, where you won't find a horror geek today who doesn't adore that movie to some degree. I, I don't understand it with The Shining. It's because it's mind boggling to me. That movie is such a giant chunk of movie. I have continued to grapple with The Shining over the course of my life. Like many Kubrick films, I don't think they are easy pieces of art that you just digest and then you're done with them and then whatever, you get it all. I think The Shining has a lot going on in it. I don't think it has anything to do with any of the stuff in Room 237, but I think that The Shining is a really remarkable film. I think that a lot of times horror sometimes is just a tough sell, even when it's a really good film. And it's not like any other horror film. You know, The Changeling was maybe the other highest ranking horror film on my my breakdown when I went through the year. But The Changeling to me is an old fashioned haunted house movie and a really good one. The Shining is something above and beyond that. I think it is an exceptional movie about the way our feelings about family can curdle when we fail ourselves, when we fail the people we love, when we are in situations where we feel like we've we've done everything wrong. And I, I think what that movie says about family is really harrowing. And just performance-wise, holy shit. And I just realized we both have two Shelley Duvall movies on our list. Uh, so my number five is The Elephant Man. My number four is The Blues Brothers. The Blues Brothers is my number two. It is Drew's number four. I'm a big fan. And The Blues Brothers is one of the few movies I will use as background noise because every time the music begins, it stops everything else in the room cold. I can listen to them talking and it's fun and it's fine and all the Sam and Dave stuff. Yeah, but you, yeah, while the dialogue is going on, you could tweet or write or talk to somebody. But when the musical numbers hit, you're like, shush, 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 wait, 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 Aretha in the, in the diner. Be quiet, 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 quiet. Every time. Every one of them, every time. As an action movie, it's epic. As a comedy, it's dry and hilarious. As a musical, it's bliss. And as a combination of the three, it is unique and absolutely wonderful. I, I, I think The Blues Brothers is a classic 80s comedy. And, and I freely admit that a good portion of my affection is on nostalgia because I saw this movie when, before I was 15. I probably saw it three, four times. But I also, as a fully uh, cynical grown-up, I think it's an absolute masterpiece. As a huge Belushi fan, as somebody who I I, I was a Belushi lunatic, like I I really love John Belushi, and there's not much of his career that you can point at as perfect as that's the exact version that they wanted to make. The Blues Brothers, you can point at and say they got it right, and it stands as a really beautiful representation of what Dan and John did beautifully together. And I think what Dan did as a writer is he knew what John's strengths were. And clearly, when you watch the Blues Brothers, he loves John Belushi, and he loved creating a situation where Belushi got to shine. And Aykroyd's happy to be the second banana. He's happy to be the guy that's standing behind Belushi, who is less of the foreground, because he knows that John is what you're looking at. And I think he loved him. I think he loved to be on that set and just watch him. And I think that, that movie captures that sort of what it was that Aykroyd loved so much about his friend and a celebration of all the good things he could be. If I was, was fortunate enough to be able to uh, choose the last film I ever see, hopefully in my 95th year, and I knew that I was going to be gone in two and a half hours, I think there's a pretty good chance this is the movie I would watch. All right. Well, if I ever kill you, I will keep that in mind. Um, number three? My number th I think we have the same number three, Drew. Do we? I'm pretty sure we do. Does your star Frank Oz as a wizened puppet? 
Why, yes, it does. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in agreement that in the third best film of 1980, The Empire Strikes Back. And look, The Empire Strikes Back is a stone-cold classic, as are most of the films on this list, in my opinion. This is this is a year where there were some unbelievable movies. There is no shame being number three in a year as good as 1980. And I think The Empire Strikes Back is not just the best Star Wars film. I think it is one of the best modern blockbusters. And I think it is the film that we should all continually look at, not because and then it gets really dark and Darth Vader gets to cut his hand off and that's why it's good. It's not that at all. What it does is it takes what we love from the first movie and it deepens everything. Everything gets bigger and richer. And getting a little darker and more challenging is just part of that. It's not just, oh, let's leave people on a downbeat. No, it, it is treating us as an audience with respect. Build up the characters, introduce new characters, new stakes, and then give people a bittersweet ending that they'll look forward to the next chapter. That's how you do it. <laughs> Uh, I'll let you do your number one. My number two was Blues Brothers. My number one was Airplane. And Drew, what was your number one? My number one, uh, the last movie that we'll, we'll cover on this this episode, is Martin Scorsese's unbelievable Raging Bull. I look at this movie and it breaks every rule of what we should be able to sympathize with or empathize with or feel for. Jake LaMotta is a loathsome, repulsive shell of a human being. There is nothing about Jake that I like or that I respect, but the movie is arresting in every single moment, and it is, as a character study, it dares you to look past repulsion at this man and how he behaves and how he treats the people around him and understand that there is still inside of that, there is some spark that wants greatness or wants to be recognized for doing something well or wants to excel in some way. And I watching him chase it, watching De Niro I can't believe that somebody as smart as Robert De Niro can play somebody as thick-headedly stupid as Jake LaMotta and never once feel like he's condescending to him or that he's playing it as a as a joke. It is such an honest, empathetic performance. See, I, I knew that Raging Bull was going to be your number one. I just knew it. And I meant to put it lower on my list, and then I just couldn't get rid of stuff that, you know, I loved as a kid. Obviously, I know that Raging Bull is a top 10 classic, but I was kind of looking at it from the nostalgia perspective, and I did not grow to appreciate Raging Bull until I was much older. I'm embarrassed that your number one is Raging Bull and mine is Airplane. Okay, I'll admit it. There, I've said it. I think these are two great lists. Um, real quick, mine from 10 to number one again, My Bodyguard, Over the Edge, Airplane, Used Cars, Popeye, The Elephant Man, The Blues Brothers, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, The Shining, and finally, Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. My top 10 seems like old times. Used Cars, 9 to 5, Popeye, Flash Gordon, The Shining, The Elephant Man, The Empire Strikes Back, The Blues Brothers, and Airplane. And I would like to mention two films we both love, but neither of us put on our lists. Caddyshack and Friday the 13th. Absolutely. I love Caddyshack. I would not say that Caddyshack belongs on a top 10 list. I think Caddyshack is a mess. I think Caddyshack is great because of all its moving parts. I don't. I think Harold Ramis was lucky that it was releasable as a film. Fair enough. Uh, the last segment that we're going to have on this show, and we like, I hope you guys are enjoying this long 1980 recap, but I would like our listeners to know that uh, my co-host, Drew McWeeny, has recently authored a book and uh, we're going to do a very quick little interview with Drew to discern what the book is all about. Drew, why don't you tell our listeners what the book is called and your ins what was your inspiration for writing it? My inspiration is actually calling on the phone right now. I can see it ringing. Um, 
And uh, it was because I decided to show my kids Star Wars in a different order than it was released and in a different order than the numbers work. I feel like both of those solutions are inadequate for storytelling. I don't think they work in either of those configurations. What I do think works is if you show episode four, episode five, and then at the end of Empire Strikes Back, show one, two, and three as a flashback and then end with Jedi. I think when you do that, it works completely differently. And I tested it by showing my two kids who were at the time six and three years old, the movie that way, the movies that way. And the book is a result of that. It's the columns that I originally wrote on, on HitFix, as well as some new material about the movies since then and about how Star Wars is something very different now than it was when you and I were growing up. All right, the book is called You're Watching It Wrong. The Film Nerd 2.0 Guide to Star Wars. Tell people where they can grab a copy and then we'll, we'll cover a little bit of the content. Just come to 80sallover.com. Film Nerd 2.0 is under the Pulp and Popcorn section, and you can find the link for the book there. It's uh, You can also just come to my Twitter feed. Uh, I'm running links for it constantly. It'll be on Amazon starting in a couple of weeks, uh, and that'll be a physical option if you want to get a, a book that is sent to you as a paperback. Otherwise, the digital copy, by the time you guys hear this, this will be in effect permanently. $1 from every book sale goes to Planned Parenthood. Yeah, good man, good man. You have a ton of of old content that a lot of your fans like to read or would have liked to have reread. And what made you want to put these essays together and complement them with some new content? Why was this the first project? Uh, because it made sense just in terms of working as a, a simple narrative arc. There is a thing that happened to the boys over the course of showing those six movies that I thought was a narrative in and of itself. And I've had more requests for that than anything else I've ever written. People have asked me over and over. So I, I got in touch with this artist, uh, a guy named Trevor Downs, and he did the new cover and the illustrations for me. Uh, he's going to keep collaborating with me. We're going to do the next book together as well. That guy's art is outstanding. And it really does. It feels great having it as this standalone thing, as, as sort of that story, because I think Star Wars is a giant part of our culture. And I think if you're going to look for an entry point to this conversation, there's, there's few things more universal than that. What advice would you give for movie geek parents? How would you help your friends raise movie geeks? Everything's an event. And don't ever go into anything telling them what they're going to think about it, or even really telling them what you think about it. Try not to oversell things to them. Try to lay out as many choices as possible. Both of my kids have a real appetite for black and white, but it's because when they were young, I dropped black and white movies into the rotation and never once commented on the difference between them. We would watch Three Stooges or we would watch uh, Abbott and Costello movies. Or we would watch Marx Brothers or Buster Keaton. And my kids grew up like thinking of those as equivalent to anything else they were watching. There was never that feeling that, well, this is lesser because it's black and white or because it's old. And I think they take their cues from you. If you won't watch something, if you won't sit down and watch a movie with subtitles, or if you won't watch a movie that's in black and white, then they certainly won't. And if you only watch new releases, if you only watch something that you just came out at the theaters, that's all they'll watch too. If you have curiosity and if you are willing to explore and if you treat film as what it is, which is this insane giant wilderness that you get to wander through, then... I, I think your kids will have a curiosity about it, but they take their cues from you. So make screening special, have fun with it. Uh, you know, my kids for several years couldn't, they knew that I would leave town and go to film festivals. And I finally uh, threw a film nerd 2.0 film festival for them at the house where I printed up badges for them. I made them line up outside my office before every movie. Um, I, uh, I, I had the whole experience. I like, I printed a program. I made sure that they knew what the schedule was and, 
I gave them a taste of what it was that I go through. You don't have to do that, obviously, but I think they end up having such a good time that the movies become part of it, not the focus of it. And I think the whole point is to spend time with them and in some way connect with them. So staring passively at something is never the the final answer. I think it's just part of a larger experience and use every movie as a way into a conversation. All right. Well, we're hoping that our listeners will give Drew's book a shot. Uh, he's going to be writing more. I think that he should follow this one up with documenting his kids watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy and then a month later, the Hobbit trilogy and then interviewing them after each film to see what they think. That That's my that's my pitch to you, Drew. We're going to be thinking of some ideas of, of uh, some uh, books that I'm going to be contributing to the Pulp and Popcorn so that you can also purchase my wonderful musings. One of the things that I, I think is important this year, and uh, this podcast is part of that, there's stuff that I want to do, and and the only way it's going to happen is if I do it and then put it out. I'm not going to ask you guys to pay me to write something, but I'm going to ask you to pay for what I've written, and I hope there will be a lot of that this year and that it'll be fun. And we will soon have a uh, Patreon page set up for 80s all over now that we have a full year. Now, of course, we're going to come begging you to support us uh, moving forward. And if you don't, uh, you can still download for free. But if you do donate, you can download knowing that we like you maybe 6 to 12% more than the We're, we're going to make it worth your while, too. We're going to have some very fun stuff for Patreon people. Anybody that ends up becoming a Patreon uh, member for 80s all over, Believe me, we will make it worth your while. It's I'm setting fun. up some uh, interviews with some 80s icons that we're going to get on the phone next year, uh, later this year. And those uh, interviews might be uh, Patreon exclusive. But we're not sure how it's going to work just yet. But yeah, if you can support us, great. If you can't, we love you anyway, because we're broke too. Guys, thank you so much for listening. This is uh, this is the end of what I'm going to call season one. And we are so uh, elated that people have... Uh, enjoyed it have, have discovered a lot of movies because of the podcast thank you to all the filmmakers because without them we wouldn't have anything to talk about and thank you to all of our listeners and a quick warning january of 1981 one weird weird ass month so we'll see you then for 80s all over thanks everybody 